Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am your host, Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. We were both orthopedic surgery residents. Actually, we were med students when we first started out the podcast, but nonetheless, we have just crossed a year into our podcast, so woot woot, and we're going to talk about our episode for the week, which is actually a little bit different, um, but I'll kind of go ahead and explain it. So we have Dr. Brian Saltzman. Uh, he's going to come and he talks to us about how to read a knee MRI as well as operative treatment of meniscus lesions. So we've kind of broken this down into two parts because obviously the how to read a knee MRI is very visual heavy. So for that video, you can check it out on YouTube if you actually want to see the things that we're looking at and pointing to. And I will, and I will release that as a part two to this podcast. So the part one will actually be, we flipped it, it'll be the operative treatment of meniscus lesions and we will play that first. And then in another day or two, we will release the how to read a knee MRI just for supplemental uh, information and content if you want to listen to it as well. But that'll be a mainly a video podcast episode. So a little bit more about today's episode. We're going to talk about the operative treatment of meniscus lesions. We're going to talk about meniscectomies, partial meniscectomies. We're going to talk about meniscal root lesions, ways to attack uh, ways to attack posterior horns versus anterior horn lesions. And in the past, sports episodes have done, t- 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 done very well on this podcast. And if you are looking or want to get an intro or know more about kind of the basics of how to treat meniscus lesions, listen to our episode with Dr. Strauss. Again, that is Dr. Strauss. I believe it might be episode number three, which we just kind of talk about what meniscus lesions are and all the different ones. And so again, this one is a little bit more in depth and a little bit more about Dr. Saltzman. He did his orthopedic surgery residency at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and then he completed his fellowship in sports medicine and shoulder and elbow at Ortho Carolina, and he is still there on staff. So Without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode with Dr. Saltzman. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. I think that was such a great, you know, I think that was such a great review on how to look over the knee MRI and and we really touched base on that, but now I know we want to switch gears and kind of go over some uh, some meniscus and you know a little bit of how to how to treat these different type of meniscus injuries, and kind of just just starting off, you know, what is your thought process on on going to the OR for these, and then and then we can kind of just quickly talk on you know just how you set up in the OR, how you set your portals up, and and what you use, you know, viewing and, and what for what. Sure. Yeah. I- I'll tell you, <clears throat> the meniscus can be a fickle beast and, and not every meniscus tear, even the same type of tear means the same thing to each you know, patient with it. And so again, clinical history, examination findings, treatment strategies, x-ray findings and concurrent pathology in the MRI, they all really play a role. In a young patient, I'm really aggressive towards fixing and sparing as much meniscus as possible, even if it means the possibility of getting burned and having to go back for, you know, one out of every 10 for fixing something that, uh, that might fail to heal, for instance. Um, but, uh, but trying to respect the meniscus, which I think we know now more than ever has a tremendous importance in the knee, particularly the lateral side, which 
you know, requires and respects that meniscus even more so than the medial side for the integrity of the surrounding cartilage. But so largely speaking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of how these patients are behaving, whether they have mechanical symptoms in the office, like locking and catching to suggest some instability to the meniscus, whether they have rotational type complaints like pit pivoting, uh, turning in bed, getting into and out of a car, the examples I ask patients of, uh, as opposed to a degenerative meniscus tear, which may be present, but you're getting more of the achy weight-bearing complaints of arthritis in that patient as opposed to the twisting rotational complaints. So it's it's you got to understand the context of the type of tear, the chronicity of the tear, the age of the patient, the history of the patient, and the exam, and those all factor into how I treat these. Yeah, just kind of treating the patient as a whole and not just right. looking at the MRI and say, oh, it's a tear, we need to fix it. Uh, but we actually need to, you know, look at all the different factors and, and figure out what's best for this patient, their level of activity. And, yeah. you know, just like you just said, all the, all the different factors. Now, you know, say, you know, Dr. Salzman, that we figured out that we want to go to the OR and, you know, we're going to fix this meniscus. What, where are you putting your portals at and what portals are you using? I, I always hear of a high and tight lateral portal. Do you use that? Do you not use that? Or what I can you say on that? I do. I go. I go kind of high and tight on my um, uh, on my lateral portal. I'm a little bit uh, lower than that picture suggests, but I do go right off of the patellar tendon. It gives really nice mobility and ability and uh, uh, an opportunity to get around the knee, and also use that lateral portal as a working portal if you need. Uh, my anterior medial portal, I uh, make under spinal needle localization once I'm in the knee, trying to come right off the top of that medial meniscus. Uh, and the, again, giving it an opportunity to, so I can get under that condyle with the knee and valgus and extension, uh, trying to open up the medial compartment. Um, so, cause if you're too high on that, you're going to block yourself out because of that, um, because the femur is going to get in the way and you'll never get to the back of the meniscus where a lot of these tears mm. happen from an accessory yeah. portal standpoint, you know, depending on where the tear is, some ramp type lesions that exist, you might be making a posterior medial portal. Um, putting a cannula in there to help work from, but largely speaking for most meniscus um, pathology, I'm using my standard anterior medial anterolateral portals. I might have an accessory portal, far medial or far lateral, depending on how I'm trying to repair it, if I'm repairing it. But a lot of the work you can do by um, those two portals in the front and by switching around. So I, you know, I, I tell the residents and fellows who, who work with me, to really make these portals, I clean out a little bit of the fat pad around them and really open them up nicely such that I've got water squirting out of both portals inside of the OR. So I go through a fair amount of water, <laughs> but what that does, is it gives you the ease and opportunity to go back and forth with your viewing and working portals and not getting caught in the knee. Like you see, you know, uh, um, as you're learning to do this, like you see getting caught with a probe and wondering why you're struggling to get in when you were just in there with the camera and now you can't get the probe in there. So I open those up really nicely and uh, make it easy to bounce back and forth for working purposes. Oh, oh, I, oh trust me. I, I have definitely made that. Uh, <laughs> I have encountered that, that, that feat that you just said there. I, you know, putting that probe in, I just had it in your tendon comes in and just touches it and it goes in. Okay. Uh, it definitely happens. Um, happens to me before. Uh, okay. Now, now let, when we're talking about, you know, tears that we're going to undergo partial meniscectomies or this procedure, what are our goals for, you know, partial meniscectomies? And then uh, technically, how do you, how do you make sure that you, that you got the whole tear that you, that you visualize everything? That's a good question. I'll, I'll tell you, coming into practice, one of the things that you wonder, and it sounds so simple, right? A simple knee, a partial meniscectomy, but wondering when enough is enough, right? And, uh, and there's a little bit of an art to it uh, on, uh, you know, as you, as you learn and get better at it. Uh, but the, the, the frank answer, like you've highlighted there, is only take out 
what's unhealthy or torn and leave as much as possible. So you don't want to leave so much where something is still torn or present. You certainly don't want to miss something that's flipped underneath itself that uh, that's a little flap tear. So again, that's why your where your preoperative planning and MRI um, comes in to say, all right, what am I expecting in there? Because sometimes you get in and you say, well, I don't really even see where that tear is. And you kind of clean things up and, you know, and if you're not paying attention, you don't realize that there's a big flap of meniscus in the meniscotibial recess that you're not seeing because it's caught underneath itself. So you don't want to be that guy or gal who misses that and wonders why the patient doesn't get better. But, um, but so again, you use your MRI to plan and say, where am I going to see a tear? And then you're cutting out tear that is unhealthy, irreparable, poorly vascularized tissue that doesn't destabilize the meniscus um, and, uh, and tries to keep as much meniscus as possible, largely speaking. Okay. And that's kind of just using that cut and evolve technique. You're just going and, and kind of just un that unstable fragment, wherever that tear is, you're just binding that out to um, healthy, you know, healthy meniscal tissue and where the where it's nice and smooth. Correct. Right. Depending on what the tear looks like, right. If you've got a chronic central bucket handle tear in an older patient that's been there forever, that's kind of where you can go in. I'll use a meniscal, you know, a um, arthroscopic scissor punch to, to kind of um, cut off one of the attachment points um, and then, you know, bite out as much as I need to, to see the posterior attachment point and then resect it from there. Um, versus, uh, you know, if there's a central base radial tear and you're getting tissue out, I'll, uh, depending on how it looks, sometimes I'll, I'll get my shaver in there. I use a low profile rounded shaver. I, I won't get into the proprietary nature of, of it, but there's some that exist for multiple companies, but it's really atraumatic in the compartment. It's really small and it gets a nice edge. So if you've got an edge to tear, you can kind of chew on that edge and follow that tear all the way back to where it's stable, or you can use an upbiting basket in the medial compartment or a straight basket in the lateral compartment just to get around the, uh, the condyle on the medial side or over the plateau on the lateral side um, to, uh, to bite out things that you need and then smooth the contour over with, uh, with the shaver, for instance. Okay. And so say, for example, you know, you're, you're, you're looking medially to do a medial meniscectomy, partial meniscectomy, and you're having trouble getting to the joint or not into the joint, you're having trouble with your visualization. I've read about, you know, some different visualization tips that you can use. Um, do you, can you kind of expand on, on what these are and do you use them in your practice? Yeah. So one, one that you're seeing here is uh, one of the hardest things in orthopedic sports surgery, honest to goodness, is a really? tight partial meniscectomy because if that compartment's tight in a, in an older, uh, you know, an older patient with a smaller knee, it's really hard to get back to the back of the meniscus and that's where all the pathology often is. And so you can do what you're seeing here, which is you can take a spinal needle and poke through the MCL and pop the superficial MCL to be able to open up in a little bit more valgus to see what you're doing. The other way of doing this is having a really good, strong PA, uh, which I have that works with me a lot. <laughs> will, you know, look at me and say, can I pop the minute, you know, pop the MCL and I'll, I'll give a go ahead to do it when we're, when we're tight and hard to see. And, and he can kind of valgusize it enough to pop some of those um, first fibers and open. it's like the world opens up. And the nice thing there is that's a safe move to do, right? Um, the patient does not need to be braced. That's not going to lead to instability. That's not a complete MCL rupture. It's just pie crusting the lesion with the spinal needle or doing the same by kind of popping it intentionally, but it is not destabilizing the knee. And there's been evidence to show that those heal just fine. They don't need to be braced. You don't have to change the rehab, but it is a little bit unsettling early in practice to, you know, to do that intentionally or unintentionally looking through the medial side of the knee, but it does end up just fine. I'll tell you anecdotally. Now say, you know, we've, we've done it, we've got our good visualization and, you know, we've know that this patient 
has, you know, one of those medial vertical, you know, uh, a longitudinal type tear. Um, any things that help you, you know, assist in visualization and then any technical tips in the OR for fixing these types of tears? Yeah, and you're highlighting Selecting. it here. Again, this is, I'll tell you, as, a, as an early attending, you're often doing these by yourself. And so trying to get that knee in valgus is tough. Um, I use a, a, what we call a popsicle uh, stick, which is a, a lateral post that's kind of well padded and keeping that, keeping the, the patient as close to that as possible and having it as kind of close to the knee as possible will, will allow you to use your body and hip check that leg to get it into valgus when it's in relative extension. And, uh, and so one thing that, um, that is really important early when you don't have help is being the one to position the leg on a simple knee or any, any case, but on a simple knee, because if that patient is over too far such that you have to abduct their leg 60 degrees at the hip before it even contacts your popsicle stick, you're not going to get any sort of valgus. You, you, I literally will tell, you know, I'll tell the anesthesiologist, watch the head and I'll pull the sheet over so that they're rubbing right up against my popsicle stick before I prep them to, to get ready for surgery. And that's so that I can use that and my hip and actually get valgus through it. Certainly. Otherwise, if you've got a, a helper, what you're showing there on the, the screen is putting the knee into some relative external rotation by externally rotating the, at the ankle, careful, of course, not to you know hurt the ankle, but if you externally right. rotate the foot in the ankle, you're going to open up that medial compartment as you put it into, you know, 20, 30 degrees of, of knee flexion with valgus. Uh, and depending on where that lesion is and how your instruments are in the knee, sometimes flexing the knee more, you know, 60, 70 degrees versus putting it into full extension might help you get to where you need to be. Okay, so flexing knee more actually may help, and then again valgus and external rotation stress. Now I've I've read and you know they say you know you start lateral and then cut medial. Does that does that matter or is it just you know you just kind of cut where you get good bites at? I say go where you can see and you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, because the, it doesn't, you know, you don't want to be so set in your ways to start somewhere and then feel like you can't see what you're cutting and then realize afterwards that you cut into good, healthy meniscus and cause an issue. So you start wherever you can see, you can cut little bits at a time and start to partially take things out um, before you, uh, uh, you know, before you go and get aggressive with things. Now, what about for our bucket handle tears? You know, the, you know, we talked, we had, we talked about the MRIs and the signs that you see, and you know, it's, it's flipped into the notch. How do you reduce those? And then, do you have any, you know, any tips on actually fixing them? Or, yeah, so if, you know, resecting them. Of course, if you've got, uh, I'll say again, a bucket handle, acute bucket handle injury, regardless of age. Um, depending, you know, depending in part on the health of the cartilage in the compartment, but largely speaking, if the knee is healthy and unremarkable and asymptomatic, and then acute injury happens with bucket handle tear, even in older patients, I'm, I'm aggressive about repairing those. You know, I, I think even though you're, you're 60, if you're running and swimming and you're thin and active and healthy and your knee looks like a 20 year old, I'd treat it like a 20 year old knee you bucket handle the meniscus. I'm going to try to repair it to reduce it. You're going to see it sticking out in a notch, largely speaking, and you're going to put your knee for a medial. You're going to put your knee in the position to see the medial compartment. So you're going to get in this valgus external rotation stretch and use the probe or, or the blunt part of the trocar um, I'll use to push it back into where it needs to be. And depending on the acuity of it, you might have to rasp behind it, which you can do easily with it unreduced. So you can pull it out of the way to see how much rim is behind it and kind of rasp that and clean it up such that it's ready to bleed and heal. But once you get it stabilized, I'll often start with a stitch either in the front 
and or in the back in a vertical mattress fashion, ideally to tack those back such that while I'm trying to get the rest of my stitches in, it's not flipping in and out of place on me or tremendously unstable. So we're uh, tacking it down at its anterior and posterior extents is a nice thing to do, or, or sometimes just putting one in the central aspect of it. It's just, you kind of got to see how it's behaving and where it's trying to displace from and how stable it is once it's in there. But, um, but either starting at the front and back and stabilizing it with a stitch or just putting one stitch vertical fashion in the center of it, just to keep it from coming out and then filling in top and bottom of the meniscus going out to the extents of the tear anterior and posterior from there. Okay. And, um, and I, I definitely want to expand on that. I'm going to, I'm going to, wrap back around to that here in a bit about, you know, definitely our meniscus repairs and, and some technical aspects for that. Now, say, for example, we have these horizontal cleavage tears. I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, actually, while we were going through the MRIs, uh, you mentioned resecting the smaller leaflet. Um, any other, I think you resected, you, you mentioned resecting the smaller leaflet first, but anything yeah. else, you know, that you have when you're, when you're looking at these medial horizontal cleavage yeah. tears? young patient with, you know, older patient with a degenerative type finding where it looks like a hamburger bun thick up top and small down below, you can resect that inferior leaflet so that there's nothing unstable, leave that superior leaflet that helps disperse your joint reactive forces accordingly. If you've got, you know, two equal size leaflets in a younger patient, I'll clean that up, rasp in between them, debris between them, and then fix in what's called a hay bale type of approach. And so if you say these, these two leaflets look healthy, it's a big part of the meniscus and it's similar top and bottom in a young patient with acute symptoms, I'm going to try to repair that. And so you can repair top over the top and the bottom, squeeze those together. And it's called a hay bale type approach because it looks like a hay bale with the, the straw around it and kind of squeezing around it. It looks almost like a bumper. And on the lateral mm -hmm. side, you circumferential around it because of the lack of some of the uh, meniscal capsular um, tissue in the posterior aspect of things. So there's some proprietary, um, approaches and, uh, and, um, um, instruments that will actually allow you to get circumferential around the meniscus and I'll actually squeeze it back together. Like you're putting a, you know, a, a zip tie around something. Um, and, uh, and we can get those to heal. And again, there's, there's some data from multiple sources, including LaProd and Aaron Critch and the Mayo Clinic guys that have shown that these can do well and you can spare meniscus by doing that. So in the appropriate patient, I, I would try to repair these more so than, you know, seven to 10 years ago where the answer was take it out. Don't try to repair it. It's not going to work well. We know a little bit more now to where I'm a little bit more aggressive about repairing these in the right patient. And, and again, so you do it, you, you, you're, Stitch is pretty much going around the whole thing because when you were saying it, I was thinking in my head, okay, you'd rasp out, try to rasp out, you know, to get some healthy bleeding and you try to put a stitch inferior, superior, superior, inferior, and then tie it. But you're saying the ones that you typically do, you actually go around the whole meniscus and try to just kind of not crunch it down, but um, just like yep. I guess like a zip tie. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Trying to squeeze it back down together to itself. And okay, cool. And then for when we're doing our, our meniscectomies on, you know, our older patients with arthritis that doesn't don't necessarily want a total knee replacement yet to have these complex tears. Um, anything else besides, you know, kind of just trying to resect back to any, you know, clean edges that, that you know, that you would, uh, that you, any tips or any advice for that? Yeah, again, in, in these, I'm, I'm, you know, I really don't want to go back in these. Right. And so I don't, I, I'm really careful to make sure that I get out all the unstable tissue, knowing that maybe the, um, 
that maybe the compartment doesn't look completely healthy around it. And I really don't want them to have mechanical symptoms. And I know they're going to have arthritic symptoms because they already do in part. And so, you know, again, you just want to be really careful to take out all the unstable edges, um, leave good meniscus, right? Good meniscus is always health, healthy and helpful, um, but you just don't want to leave anything behind in these knees. Okay. So say, you know, though we just talked about, you know, partial meniscectomies for the medial side, Anything else for the lateral side or, or, or things that you should think of? I know there's some things, you know, when, you, when you're making your portal that you want to, you know, be on the lookout for. But if you look and you see that they have, you know, a lateral meniscus tear that you want to try to do a meniscectomy on, what are some things that you should, you know, be on the lookout for and make sure that you can, you can do and have proper access? Yeah. And so, and so uh, some of the things you highlight here, I, again, I have no problem when I'm dealing with meniscus to switch my portals. And so if you're viewing from lateral, working from medial and your portal isn't great and it's hard to get around the spine, uh, the tibial spine, you can't get to where you need to be. There's no, no shame or issue in viewing from medial over the top, using your 30 degree scope to get a view of what you were having trouble reaching with the instrument and then just coming straight at it from the lateral portal with your instrument. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty I mean, pretty self-explanatory there. Um, and any, you know, any, anything else for, for lateral tears? I know I'd assume it's pretty much mostly the same for horizontal yeah. or radial tears. Yep. Um, earlier we mentioned, you know, if you had a meniscal cyst in the back, you, you typically will, will shave that down. If you have like a, a horizontal tear with that associated meniscal cyst, do I'll, you, do you I'll often try, and, I'll often try and shove the shaver through the tear into the periphery and you'll get a, a rush back of some oily looking cystic fluid liquid. Uh, and if it's uh, small, that's really all I would worry about, or I, I wouldn't even bother it at all because the, the cyst, if small, probably isn't causing any issues. It's more just a sign of what's underneath it, like a Baker's mm. cyst. Um, yeah. But if there's, I've had some which are really big cysts, which I've actually had to make a, an, you know, an open incision on the side to get down and excise um, because it's been big enough to cause kind of a mass effect on the knee to where it's painful in and of itself underneath the IT band and things like that. So uh, largely speaking, if it's small, it's probably not doing much. You can either let it be or or poke through it through the tear. Um, but if it's really big, sometimes you got to do it open. Now, say, for example, you you go in and for some reason, you know, I don't know, the resident looked at the uh, MRI or something and, and didn't realize that they had a, a discoid meniscus, but most of their symptoms were immediately, but you know that they had a torn discoid meniscus. Do you resect it? Do you leave it? Do you perform a, you know, do you perform a, mar a partial meniscectomy? What do you do at that point? Good question. I, um, I, you know, I want to be really astute to seeing that on the MRI and trying to see if they've got catching locking in the outside part of the knee. Um, if they've gone that far in their life without it being an issue and there's, and there's no tear to it, you know, you, you have two options. You can either leave it or you can saucerize it. So it doesn't tear in the future because those do have a propensity to try to tear. Um, and so, you know, largely speaking, I'll, I'll have a low threshold to saucerize it, um, just to make sure it's not an issue in the future, um, because it does affect the biomechanics of the knee and it is at, at high risk for tear, especially in a younger patient. But in an older patient who it's lasted them, you know, all that time and they're not having issues from it, I don't necessarily try to cause too much issues. And when you saucerize it, do you just, you know, do you just do it to, I guess, the extent of the tear or do you try to make it look like the, uh, like the medial meniscus? How do you know when to stop? It's a good question. A lot of times if you have a discoid meniscus tear, it'll tear radially through and I'll saucerize until it looks what looks like a lateral meniscus should look underlying a tear in a, in a, um, Discoid meniscus often is a horizontal tear pattern underneath. 
And so once you saucerize it out, you have to also inspect to see if there's a residual horizontal tear that needs to be repaired in a young patient, for instance, um, because that uh, that's often hiding underneath where that radial tear gets chewed back to when you saucerize it. But largely speaking, you see the picture there. I, I try to make it look like a lateral meniscus should look. Okay. Uh, I think that was good talking about meniscectomies and I guess kind of transitioning towards going for meniscus repair. And these are, you know, the ones that, well, I guess... What, what patients are you doing a meniscus repair on? And then do you have any just general, first of all, tips for, you know, doing a meniscus repair? Sure. Yeah. Kind of the way I think about the meniscus again is I try to spare meniscus if possible. So I, uh, I have a, a, a low threshold to repair in the appropriate type of tear, in the appropriate age and type of patient with the appropriate health of surrounding compartment. So you know, age to me, chronologic age is, is part of the variable. Um, but physiologic age, tear location, health of the cartilage above and below all matter to me more than chronologic age does. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and kind of seeing where that tear is and the tear pattern and, and receptibility to repair is obviously important, making sure it's in a vascularized portion of periphery of meniscus as opposed to trying to stitch back together a white, white or a white red radial tear, which isn't going to work. Um, but, uh, but again, yeah, good vascular tissue in the periphery, young chronic or young physiologic patient with good cartilage. I'm going to try to repair that. Okay. And, and what is rasping and, and what is trepanation and do you use both of them? Do you use one of them and, and what are their, their roles in meniscus repair? Yeah. Largely speaking, rasping is, uh, you know, with a, a little arthroscopic instrument that looks is, is a rasp, right? It looks like a little medieval, uh, spike ball. Um, where you can go into that torn location of meniscus and and if it's a more chronic type of a tear, um, stimulate up some of that fibrous tissue to go away so you get a little bit of bleeding uh, in the surfaces to help with reparative efforts. Uh, Traffination being a uh, you know, concept similar, but uh, but just poking it to try to get vascular channels to come in to help with repair. Okay. And so, you know, I always hear about these different types of techniques. There's outside in, inside out all inside how do you know i guess is there is there is one uh technique you know better used for certain types of tears than others or how do you know you know what to uh which technique to use um yeah good question very loaded question the the kind of (laughs) the basic thought uh, of it is this is I think of all inside or inside out techniques as being somewhat synonymous in most situations and dependent on either how you trained or how many sutures you're putting in um, or, uh, or where that tear is. Largely speaking, in a lot of places where an all inside repair device can be used, an inside out repair device can be used as well, such as in the back part of the knee or the posterior, you know, the uh, posterior half of the meniscus, for instance. Um, I tend to use uh, inside out repair technique very sparingly because I think there's plenty of data at this point to show it's equivalent to in most uh, most all situations it's equivalent to all inside reparative efforts with um, a slightly lower risk of you know complications being wound issues or nerve issues for making the incisions around the posterior medial or posterior lateral aspect of the knee but it comes at a far greater cost with the all inside devices certainly uh, but I think today's on-site devices are so good that they can be used for most situations where we used to use inside-out techniques as the gold standard per se. And I think that's being challenged now. Uh, outside-in techniques become more um, valuable um, in some of the more mid to anterior aspect of the knee where you think about, well, how am I going to get the angle to put something into the knee front toward the back 
where where I need to repair it going from more back toward the front in those uh, in those efforts. And so mm. um, out devices could be used mid or anterior with some of the navigation devices that will allow you to curve around and go from, you know, putting something front to back to, to having it come out back to front. Um, or you can use inside out techniques like you're seeing in that picture on the left where you can um, use a proprietary kits to poke through through the skin and through meniscus and uh, use a second needle to poke through again in the second location of meniscus or above or below and put a proline or a fiber wire uh, or a tape suture through and tie that down um, through an incision that you make uh, you know, between those two suture limbs over the capsule in the front of the knee. Uh, and that can be a good augment for me in particular. I'll, I'll use that in my anterior uh, horn type tears. I, I like the uh, one of the proprietary kits that I have available to me um, for using that in the anterior horn, uh, whereas I'll often use a combination of inside out um, if necessary in kind of the anterior to mid body region if necessary. And then the posterior half of the meniscus, meniscus largely speaking, I'll do all inside type techniques, but you could do inside out techniques as needed. And just to just to clarify, to break break it down, inside out just means that we are tying the sutures on the outside of the capsule or does it mean that the suture, what is, I guess, what does inside Sorry, out or outside I, in mean? I take a step back. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, inside out essentially means that you're putting a device from inside the knee coming outside the knee, and then you're going to tie it over the capsule. So you see those big long sutures that you can navigate through the knee and come out um, through your open incision in the back part of the, you know, the posterior medial or posterior lateral part of the knee that's putting suture from inside to the outside and tying it from the outside. So you're putting it inside, having it come outside and tying it over the capsule. All inside actually has either plastic widgets or all inside balled up suture or, or, or straight suture where you're, you're getting the fixation still outside of the capsule, but you're poking those needles in from only inside through your arthroscopic technique. And then the device themselves are sophisticated enough to flip the you know, plastic widget or, or ball up the suture or linearize the, the suture um, behind the capsule so that they stay on the capsule. Um, but everything is getting some degree of fixation outside the knee and the capsule. It just matters whether your device is allowing you to do it from all arthroscopic means, like an all-inside technique, or if you're making an open incision to find those coming outside of the knee and then tying them down yourself, which would be an inside-out technique. And do you ever use the, the at least when I read, I saw it a couple of times about the mulberry knot. Do you ever, can you describe what that is and do you ever use it or is it just something um, that that's more like just to know and having your arsenal just in case. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's a knot type technique to provide kind of a, a stoppage point, but, uh, but largely speaking for me, I'm, I tie, you know, I tie, a um, um, a half hitch locking type knot. Um, and so it's just something in the arsenal that doesn't have to be done. Okay. So can you kind of walk us through, if you're going to do an inside out repair, how do you do it? And then any, any, um, any, tips that you've, you know, or, or tricks that you've encountered, you know, through your, you know, training or through, you know, your practice and your, you know, since your fellowship. Yeah. So when, if you're, if you're doing an inside out meniscus repair on the medial side, your incisions going behind the MCL, dissecting down to get, uh, you know, some kind of a viewing type device, a speculum type device, or, or a, we use it, you know, there's a metal spoon that, that uh, we use in residency that I, I still use at times now, something, um, uh, something that's going to get around the back to protect the needles 
coming out from going straight in the back where the neurovasculature is and allowing it to kind of hit hit the the retracting device and then bounce out towards you so that you can catch those needles so you want to be careful of you know hitting um excuse me, of those needles again, knowing where they're coming out and making sure that they're not coming out in different portions or through the skin so that you're getting suture bridges through the skin. You got to just make sure that they're coming out your incision over the capsule. And when you tie them down, you're tying them down directly on a capsule and not overlying, you know, MCL or, uh, or semimembranosis or sartorial fascia or something. Okay. And again, so that's where we're, you know, you, you, you dissect it down there and then we, we pierce the, uh, we pierce the meniscus, you know, with our needle or whichever it may be, um, put our sutures through and then we tie, we tie them inside. You tie them through your incision over the, the two limbs get tied on that right side image. You see, they get tied over the top of the capsule such that they're squeezing yeah. down the two places between where the suture needles were that you put from inside the knee. Right. Okay. Very good. And almost, I guess, can you kind of walk us through the same thing for posterior lateral, you know, when you have, you know, posterior lateral uh, meniscus tears and you decide to do an inside out repair? Sure. Same concept. Incision here is behind the, the FCL, anterior to the biceps, developing a plane between the IT band and your biceps tendon to expose the back of the gastroc and, and overlying or and, and the underlying capsule. And again, you can get a popliteal retractor in a speculum type retractor so that you can do the same thing. So when you pierce the meniscus, it's not going in the back of the knee. Okay. And I know we mentioned a little bit about the outside in technique, you know, you're talking about, you can use that for your anterior horn, uh, your anterior horn tears is maybe something that you may use it for. And I know you talk about little different devices, um, can you kind of just quickly touch on that one more one more time about how you do this outside in technique and any so, other yeah. or tips or tricks? Yeah, this is like it sounds. You're going from outside the knee to inside the knee. So this this these are not being put through your portals, but rather through the skin on the outside or an incision on the outside part of the knee, depending on where it is. But you're piercing through from outside of the capsule to inside the meniscus as opposed to inside meniscus to outside capsule. That's where the outside in comes in. And again, when you're in, in the anterior half of the meniscus, this can be valuable because you can poke it directly through the skin, watch yourself coming in and poke it through meniscus, and then have the suture coming out toward you, make an incision in the skin so that you can get these pulled through in the same spot of your incision and tie them down over the front or, or uh, you know, mid part of the capsule. Um, but it's more just a technical aspect of going from outside this, the knee and capsule to inside meniscus, as opposed to the other way around, which the other two types of techniques do. And I know you said that typically most of the time you'll, you'll do an all inside technique. And so yeah. what tips do you have for that? And then how do you decide whether you're going to do a vertical mattress versus a horizontal mattress um, in your, in your, uh, in your knot? Yeah. Vertical mattress is um, largely speaking is biomechanically superior to a horizontal mattress, but sometimes like a bucket handle tear, again, I have no problem putting a horizontal mattress stitch in first to tack it back because it'll spread out between two points better and actually provide some reduction to the meniscus over a larger kind of width of tissue. Um, but, uh, but where you can putting a vertical mattress, which will go one through the meniscus and, and tear. And then the second kind of uh, um, you know, into the capsule and ta and squeezing that tear together and then also uh, tacking it back toward the capsule to stabilize it there. So I, I'm probably thinking of it wrong. So I thought the vertical mattress was just saying that, you know, you take one a little bit, one by a little bit more inferior, another one superior on 
those uh, on, you know, in, in relation to our meniscus tear. But that is not correct. So what I'm thinking, is that right? It's, it's uh, you know, it's essentially putting it through meniscus on one and then going vertical to it, depending on if you're on the undersurface or superior surface of meniscus, going truly above or, or below in a vertical fashion to go straight through the capsule. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And then, so what if you, are there any, any things to be, you know, on the lookout for, for say, for example, you know, you, you, you put your stitch in and then you notice that there's some puckering in a meniscus. Is there any, anything you do at that point? Do you take the suture out? Do you put a, a different suture in, in a different area? How, what do you do at that point? Yeah. One, one thing like you highlight in here, you can, you can use sutures and overlap them as well and in different fashions. So if you, if you flip up meniscus, so essentially what I'll end up doing is putting um, sutures on the top side as well as the bottom side of the meniscus, because you put one on one in on the top and it flips it up. And then you want to put a second one in underneath to help stabilize it, but also flip it back down. Um, you can put a horizontal mattress in underneath that or a vertical mattress in to help do that. Um, but, uh, but you can put sutures on both the top and the bottom of the meniscus again, to stabilize the repair, but also to prevent it from flipping on itself. Okay. And another question I had for you is, do you ever augment your meniscal repairs? I, you know, I know some people may, you know, rasp or try to get some type of bleeding into the, into the joint to help, you know, with growth factors, but what, what do you do anything? Do you, do you ever augment or do anything else for your repairs? I know there's some talks of PRP injections. What are your thoughts? Any meniscus that gets repaired in isolation, I will vent. And so I'll microfracture around the notch in front of the ACL to get some bone marrow contents to come in. And that's some data from Laprade and others, uh, which you're seeing as a common theme, some of these names out there who have done great work. Uh, but they've showed that that in, in an isolated meniscus repair makes it closer to when you repair meniscus with an, AC with an ACL, which is the best way to get one to heal. Um, in a revision setting or a big tear or, or um, uh, you know, a really common complex type of pathology to the meniscus with kind of heroic efforts. I'll often um, talk to the patient about putting bone marrow aspirate into the knee at the time of surgery or putting PRP in during the time of surgery and or um, at the uh, initial follow-up visit, which is not purely scientific at this point because there's some varying degrees of science on that, uh, but something that, uh, that we're looking into a little bit closer. Okay. And what patients now, now moving forward and, and now we're, you know, just kind of touching base before we wrap here on meniscus roots. Uh, when do you repair them? Do you, do you operate on every meniscus root, whether they're medial or lateral, or does it, does it, does it, does it matter? Uh, so when do you repair them? And if you do, I kind of, what, what tips or what tricks or, you know, that you can impart on our listeners. Some may be new attending, some may be fellows getting ready to, you know, excited to do their first, you know, sports case meniscus root repair. Sure. Yeah, it's a very gray zone um, meniscus pathology uh, in comparison with some of the other things we know about the meniscus. Um, not every meniscal root needs to be fixed. It's in the context of the knee, right? So a 70 year old with a meniscus root tear and a bunch of arthritis, that's not a, a super satisfying thing to go in and expect that repairing the meniscal root is going to help their symptoms. It's, uh, it's more of a, a pathology that is helping to protect the knee going forward. So it should help reduce symptoms, but it's also going to protect the knee going forward. 
um, because of the biomechanical effects to a meniscus root tear. Again, the medial meniscal root relies on that root, whereas the lateral meniscal root can avulse, but if the meniscal femoral ligaments are still intact, there's biomechanical data to suggest that it's still stable enough to protect the knee. Um, largely speaking for reparative efforts, what, um, what I will do, or, and I'll, I'll take one step back to where we just, uh, our institution with uh, myself and my colleagues just submitted and, uh, and, uh, hopefully we'll publish our, um, experience on root repairs, which is, um, on a, a slightly kind of older and, um, more overweight population than some of the bigger, um, cohorts out there, mm -hmm. uh, that were published earlier. And, uh, and what we've seen is, uh, is that uh, not even if you get a good repair that heals on MRI, um, some of those arthritic changes still will set in and patients, however, will, will do relatively well in our series. Um, and so that we don't exactly, again, we don't exactly understand how or why some of these knees still progress, even if you get it to heal to some arthritic changes, uh, why some patients do better than others, but certainly, uh, you know, a young, healthy patient with an acute injury and a vulst root repairing that should help prevent the knee from developing arthritis and reduce uh, any issues going forward. And the way I repair these largely is, uh, right now at least, is the way Laprade described, which is through a bone tunnel. Um, I'll put two sutures in a luggage tag cinch configuration, a little fiber cinch configuration. We know that biomechanical data shows, uh, number one, that two sutures is better than one, which makes sense, but it's biomechanically supported. We know that number two, it's important to repair these at the anatomic insertion site because if you medialize the repair site, it significantly affects the biomechanical integrity of your repair. Uh, and, uh, and then we, uh, we have some varying data on how to fix these over the tibia. Um, I have fixed these over a bone bridge. I fixed these over a metallic button. And at this point, I fixed them into a knotless anchor, which has some uh, varying degrees of... Uh, biomechanical studies, some that have showed that that's better, some that have showed it's equivocal, and some that have shown it's worse than a bone bridge. Uh, but for me personally, I feel like I can get a really stable, good repair, uh, docking those into a knotless anchor about a centimeter below uh, where they're coming out in the tibia and have been happy with that. Um, we did uh, myself uh, as a uh, as the, the primary author with uh, one of my colleagues as a senior author published in arthroscopy uh, just over a year ago, a technique showing in the lab at least that an all inside repair of the posterior medial meniscus root to the nearby PCL, which sits right next to it, doing a somewhat Mason Allen type of a repair, which uh, we kind of delineate in the publication, actually restores the biomechanical integrity of the intact meniscal root. And so uh, while I, you know, while I studied that and, and published that uh, with my colleagues, um, I have not yet adopted that. I still, you know, in all honesty, do the uh, Laprade repair, uh, but that's as we're trying to uh, get a better understanding through through some of the biomechanical and then hopefully clinical efforts in the future to see if uh, what we're talking about might have an easier way of doing it that uh, that restores it in the same fashion that the Laprade um, ki kind of uh, transosseous bone tunnel does. But it's something to think about. Okay. And I know you mentioned on a couple of things is one, making sure you have an anatomic reduction, making sure you don't medialize it because that'll make abnormal uh, biomechanical forces on the meniscus. Two, having two loop stitches uh, is, of course, better than one and is, is stronger and better. Now, as far as visualization of the root, um, do you do a reverse notch plasty? I guess remove some of that bone to allow you to see a little bit better. Is that something you do with these cases or just when you need to? I have sparingly. Yeah. I think, uh, I think if you've got, um, uh, you know, good valgus on the knee, 
um, that uh, that you can get to that root site a little bit easier sometimes than uh, than it can be to get to just the posterior horn. Um, but uh, like you see in that image there, you can see how it might be harder to see the posterior horn there, but your root insertion site is a little bit easier to see. Um, and uh, but um, uh, but yeah, I've done reverse notchplasty to get a better image there of where you're looking at, which is fine to do. I've switched back and forth with the, the camera. I've used a post-intermedial portal before to, to help with, uh, with seeing things very, very sparingly to the point that, uh, that it's uh, pretty uncommon to have to do something like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, you do whatever you need to do to see. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of that, any tips with the arthroscope? in order to clearly, you know, visualize that, that root tear? Um, you know, you can look, uh, um, you can view it again from, from either portal. Um, just, uh, you can trephinate the MCL as well to get a better exposure of the medial compartment as a whole. Um, uh, you have written here, better, better positioning of the scope across the lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle and under the uh, the back of the PCL would certainly help to see a little bit better getting it back towards the back of the knee. Um, and, um, uh, just, uh, yeah, just really anything you can do, use the, use the eyes of the camera with you, right. Use the 30 degree, um, curvature that you have to, to help so that, uh, you might not be in the best position of where the camera's sitting, but you can use your eyes to see better, um, and, uh, switch to a 70 degree scope if you need. I haven't had to do that for this. Um, but, uh, but I will do that for my PCL sometimes. And, uh, and again, that, uh, that root insertion site can be seen with a 70 degree scope, certainly. Perfect. Well, I think, again, I think this was a great talk. We went over, uh, we went over a lot, definitely talking about, you know, the, the MRI for anybody that listened or watched this on, on YouTube, uh, we went over, you know, how to look over MRIs and read the MRIs. And then we just deeply dove into, different ways to, you know, treat a meniscus. We talked about partial meniscectomies. We talked about ways to visualize medial tears, uh, you know, lateral tears. We talked about meniscus repairs and, uh, you know, we talked about what inside out is outside, uh, outside in all inside we talked about different ways to fix, you know, um, our, our root tears again, uh, Dr. Salzman, I think this was a great talk, very informative before we wrap up here, is there anything else that you, you know, want the listeners to get away with, you know, after listening to this episode or any, any high points? Uh, I would say from the MRI side, again, get comfortable reading your own MRIs. There are times where, you know, where you see something that might've gotten missed. And again, cause you're looking for it with the clinical scenario. So get comfortable looking at your own MRIs and, and all three sequences. Uh, or all three views rather. Uh, and then from the meniscus standpoint, respect the meniscus, you know, it's really, it's important and not all meniscus um, pathologies or, or persons are the same. So kind of clinical context and respect as much meniscus as possible. That's great. And at the end of our, our talks, we always give our guests um, some way, you know, for the, if you have social media or anything that you want to, that you want people to follow you on, want people to follow your fellowship page or anything uh, that you would like the, the people listening to follow, be able to reach out or interact. Um, if you want to share that, go ahead. Don't feel the need to, but if you want to go for it. I'm actually, I'm actually really naive on the social media. So I haven't gotten, <laughs> gotten to it yet, but at some point in the future, I'll, I'll get, uh, get that going and, uh, and would love to, you know, to have people reach out to me and, and uh, in any other way, shape, or fashion, any questions that uh, that can come through to y'all that you can pass along to me, I'd be happy to uh, to speak to anybody who uh, would like to. 
Perfect. Well, Dr. Salzman, again, uh, thank you so much for coming on. For those listening, thank you all for listening. We hope you uh, really enjoy listening to this episode. Please go and leave a review and hit that subscribe button. So until next week.